You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Think about medieval times, Danny, like when this castle was built. People were constantly seeing ghosts, having visions. They thought Christ was sitting with them at the dinner table. They thought angels and devils were flying around. We don't see those things anymore. Why? Was all that stuff happening before and then it stopped? Unlikely. Was everyone nuts in medieval times? Doubtful. But their imaginations were more active. Their inner lives were rich and weird. Imagination. It saved my life. I was a fat kid, adopted. I didn't have many friends, but I made things up. I had a life in my head that had nothing to do with my life. And what about people in medieval times? They saw one shitty little town their whole lives. Their kids caught a cold and dropped dead. They had three teeth left in their heads by the time they hit 30. People had to do something to shake things up or they would have keeled over from misery and boredom. So Christ came to dinner. Witches and goblins were hiding in corners. People looked at the sky and saw angels. So Christ came to dinner. Witches and goblins were hiding in corners. People looked at the sky and saw angels. And my idea, my plan, my mission is to bring some of that back. Let people be tourists of their own imaginations. And please don't say like Disneyland because that's the exact opposite of what I'm talking about. People are bored. They're dead. Go to a shopping mall and check out the faces. I did this for years. I'd drive out to the malls on weekends and just sit there watching people, trying to figure it out. What's missing? What do they need? What's the next step? And then I got it. Imagination. We've lost the ability to make things up. We farmed out that job to the entertainment industry, and we sit around and drool on ourselves while they do it for us. Jennifer Egan's first novel was The Invisible Circus. Her second novel, Look at Me, was a National Book Award finalist. Her new novel is The Keep. Welcome to the program, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Jennifer, uh, I've seen some comments about your books, and they are very different in tone and subject, but I think they all have one commonality that strikes me as very strong, is I believe that you are the queen of the blank slate. <laughs> well, thank you. That's an honor I'm happy to accept. <laughs> there seems to be a, a theme of blank slates, pasts that are hidden and need to be filled in, faces that are changed and replaced with something indistinguishable from others, pages that are filled with stories and words. Is this something, did you have an experience with a chalkboard in your youth? No, it's funny. When you first said blank slate, I interpreted it in a slightly different way, which I also really like, which is that I feel like when I start a new book, I like to feel that I'm basically throwing away everything I've done before. That it, Not that I don't like it and, or don't believe in it, but that I'm done with it. And I really want to feel like I'm empty-handed and I'm, I'm starting with nothing. And I seem to find that very exciting, although it's also very scary because each time I think, but I'm, I don't know how to do this new thing. And I think in a way I really don't know how to do it and I don't have the skills to do whatever it is that I'm trying to do as opposed to doing something whose skills I've acquired the prior time. And the nice thing about it is that by the time I finish, I have actually had to acquire a new set of skills, which then I then can throw away <laughs> the next time. It's, you know, it really has to do with what makes writing interesting to me, which is a feeling of discovery and excitement and, um, and new territory. For me, there is just nothing fun about 
doing something that feels familiar. And it's one reason that I never write about myself, which is probably also why the books are very different from each other. There, there is no through line of my own experience guiding me here. I'm, I, that, that I threw away before I started anything. <laughs> that I throw away the minute I sit down at the desk, and it's a fantastic escape. So that's just talking about the writing process itself. I think in terms of thematic content, I'm very interested in the ways that we create ourselves uh, in our lives and the ways that, that our pasts contribute to that, of course, but also particularly in the context of image culture in which there's such an emphasis on um, the, you know, starting from the outside and moving in. I'm very interested in the ways that we create ourselves and each other in that context. And I think that really has been a theme running through my work. One of the things that interests me of, in your book, um, Look at Me, was it's something of a science fiction novel in a sense. But like most science fiction, no matter how far science fiction is set in the future or how weird the world is, it's always really about the present because that's where the writer lives. And, and you encountered that as you created your future in science in Look at Me. It came right up back at you, didn't it? It was a very it was a, it was by turns frustrating and scary. I mean, I wanted to write a futuristic book about American culture and all the pressures that I saw bearing on it as we headed toward the 21st century. And I feel like what it reads as now, a mere five years later, is the the most slavish verisimilitude because literally every single idea I had ended up happening. I could not stay ahead. And my only conclusion from all that is if you wanted if you want to grapple with American culture, you better write fast. <laughs> I'm not really very fast, so maybe I'm not the best person to be doing that particular sort of job. But you know, there were all kinds of things that interested me, one of which was that what I what I saw as the beginning of a kind of fetishization of reality. Um, so I came up with this whole complicated idea about an online internet service that sort of that sells for entertainment so-called ordinary people's lives. Um, and I thought this was just, you know, a brilliant kind of crazy idea. And then when I opened up the newspaper, you know, many years ago now and saw that reality TV was coming to America in the form of a show about people stranded on a desert island, I thought, you've got to be kidding. Tell me this is the April Fool's issue. This can't be. This is an even better idea than the one I came up with. <laughs> And that it went on and on that way, and most chillingly in the sense that I did imagine the sleeper terrorist in the Middle East hiding among, you know, so-called ordinary Americans. And, um, and you know, he did have some strange uh, similarities to Mohammed Atta and some of the other September 11th uh, bombers. You were born in the Midwest, and, and that bears some uh, importance on this book, doesn't it? Yes. Well, a lot of Look at Me takes place in Rockford, Illinois, which is not my hometown, but my mother's hometown. And it's very near Chicago, which is where I was born. And it's funny, you know, I, I had never really thought I would write about Rockford, Illinois. It's, it's, a, it's an unprepossessing place um, and in, in some ways very typically American, lots of strip malls. The downtown is very decayed and dead. My mother absolutely hated it and couldn't get out of there fast enough. Um, but I really enjoyed it because it's where my grandparents lived. And then, and I would go and visit them in the summers and swim in the country club pool and run around the golf course. But I found myself becoming somewhat haunted by Rockford after both of my grandparents had passed away, and I couldn't figure out why. And I would, I finally found myself actually getting on planes and going there alone and renting cars and just driving around and, 
eating Swedish pancakes and watching unsolved mysteries in Boy, my motel room at night. <laughs> that's creepy. It was kind of creepy. Um, but, you know, because of the, the kind of odd way I write, which involves very little planning and which seems to um, reveal itself to me as I'm going along, I think what I was really doing on those trips was just letting the landscape give me a sense of what the story would be or who would be in the story. And I think that what drew me so much to the Midwest was that I really was interested in uh, the Industrial Revolution in America and and our transition from a country that made things into a country that provided much more ineffable services. And I was interested in the, the psychological change that went along with that. And definitely, I was interested in, as I, as I said before, image culture and its impact on identity and sort of how all of these ideas would fit together. That all sounds very abstract and kind of dry. I mean, it really is a novel about people. Um, and people are, are certainly what I read for when I'm reading and stories. But but my stuff tends to have a pretty strong girding of ideas. And oddly enough, it really is the ideas that seem to render up the people rather than the other way around. Tell me what you mean by image culture. I think I just, I, that is one of those very slippery terms. I think I just mean um, media-saturated experience that places an enormous emphasis on celebrity um, and and a notion of, of otherness that seems to be glossy, uh, exciting, um, connected to the world of advertising and rather apart from one's everyday daily life. The, the media is, a, is an intermediary between us and, and our own experiences, the things that we can reach out and touch. Instead of reaching out and touch them, we look at things that we would might be out there reaching out and touching. Well, and the what really funny thing is that there there is something about mediated experience that that at least when one looks at it and imagines what it would be like to be inside it seems somehow more alive, more distinct, and more exciting than one's own everyday experience. Um, and I think that what my first novel, The Invisible Circus, asks the question of to what degree um, you know the the, the televising of the Vietnam War and of the counterculture um, was actually a part of the countercultural experience itself. In other words, what to what degree were, was the media, along with drugs and all the other things that made experience seem very heightened to people in the counterculture during the 60s, to, to what degree did the media play a kind of analogous role in all that? And this is not my idea. I mean, Todd Gitlin has written very interestingly about this. Um, but I think those were some of the ideas that were in my novel, The Invisible Circus. Tell us a little bit about some of the... Uh, your, your new novel is called The Keep. It's a gothic novel kind of. <laughs> it's also in many ways a science fiction novel. I, I saw it as that. I, I experienced it as that even though it doesn't have any of the usual appurtenances of science fiction. I'd be curious to hear you explain what you mean by that. Um, I'm, I love the idea of it, but I didn't, I wasn't thinking of it that way as I wrote it. Well. <laughs> <laughs> to turn the tables a little here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> at, at, for one thing, you have in here some interesting notions of telecommunications as being uh, a technological version of the paranormal and of the supernatural, which is a really interesting theme. But the way that you actually deconstruct literary uh, forms 
you if literature is a technology, then of course you can look at the future of that technology. And you have taken the keep has a sort of futuristic feel for a novel. It's like what you would expect the novels of the future to be like. It's the different pieces have been broken down and reassembled in a slightly different way. And some things are pulled up to the front that are usually hidden, and other things are rolled to the back that are usually up front. That's totally fascinating. Um, I didn't think of it in that way, but those were definitely my goals. I mean, I wanted it to be a book in which, you know, for example, in Beckett's novel Murphy, um, he the, the literary conventions are right on the surface. He refuses to engage in the slate of hand that the novelist is using all the time to, you know, insert backstory and segue naturally between speakers and just all, you know, let us know what the weather is like and the time and the place. Um, and I was kind of interested in not engaging in some of those things and letting letting it feel a little raw and rougher. And the key, and, and, and more than that, I think what you're saying, to try to just move things around in a way that would make them feel a little bit more new. And so the way that I found to do that, I, I knew I wanted to write a Gothic novel, and that idea came to me somewhat out of the blue, but it really took hold of me. And I read a lot of Gothic fiction, especially the really old stuff, which is so crazy and, and weird and fun. And I and I loved the idea of using some of these conventions, especially the old structure, you know, the old house or castle that's almost always somewhere near the center of, of Gothic fiction. And, and, you know, and a lot of the other stuff, too, the, the texts inside, texts and all of that. But I really, really struggled with the voice because I was essentially trying to use the voice of Look at Me, which is, you know, as we were discussing, a very kind of an urban, ironic, very plugged in sort of sensibility, very contemporary and somewhat sophisticated. You know, you feel that the speaker is is educated. And I felt I found that that voice was really useless in dealing with this gothic material. And the question I kept having as I tried to write it was, why would this voice tell this story? Why would this voice be interested in this material? I couldn't come up with an answer to that. And as a result, it was just, it was impossible. I couldn't, could do, couldn't do anything. And then at a certain point, I found myself writing, I'm trying to write a novel. And I'm, I think I... I knew right away that it was I wasn't saying that as myself. I was not expressing my own frustration. I was speaking as a different speaker. And once I realized that my speaker was actually a less educated, untried writer, someone just trying to figure out how to do it, and in fact that he was a prisoner in a writing class, things began to pop much better. You know, I felt I needed I needed the opposition of those two worlds and I needed this voice that for its own reasons, refused or could not and would not engage in the kinds of literary conventions that I was accustomed to. You mentioned that you were looking at some of the early Gothic novels. And one thing that's interesting about them, that's when they were creating the literary technologies that in forms that we are so familiar with today. And they were just discovering some of the narrative voices shifting back and forth. That's true. I mean, if you think of books like Charles Maturin's Melmoth the Wanderer, I mean, it's texts inside texts inside texts, all kinds of worlds juxtaposed. I mean, you would look at it from a contemporary perspective and say, what a mess. And in a way, it really is a mess. But it's sort of a glorious mess. And uh, and I found that I agree. There is there is a feeling of the novel figuring out what it, it is. Exactly. And, and that's what you're doing. Once again, the novel having settled down in form, you 
rip it to pieces like an impatient little child <laughs> and put it back together in a very interesting form. Well, you know, one thing that I find uh, sort of curious is that people always credit Joyce with really having done that and introduced modernism and, and found all these new and amazing things that the novel could do. But if you look at the very first novels, like Don Quixote or um, Lawrence Stern's Tristram Shandy, those books are, are totally what we would call postmodern. They are completely about themselves being written. They break every so-called rule um, about literary convention. They're absolutely wild. I mean, and, and, they, and they are not a mess. Those books are very fine. And I, I feel like in a way it took many hundreds of years to get back to that. And I'm not quite sure what, what happened there. <laughs> but I think that this kind of experimentation has existed from the very, very beginnings of the novel. And the idea that it, it shouldn't be done or that it's somehow, you know, scary to do it, I think is really um, – there, there's a, uh, a lack of understanding of actually how this form came to be. One thing that interests me is that your attempt to escape the traditions of just – shifting to a new chapter when you pick up a new voice and you do some really great stuff. I, I'm curious, how did you write this from the get-go? Well, I did it the way I write everything, which is very blindly, by hand. And by hand? By hand. I oh. write by hand. <laughs> Take a That's deep breath. Crazy. It's possible. It can be done. <laughs> It's a shock. You know, you hold a pencil or a pen between your fingers and you move it over the paper. No, I, I believe me, I have tried writing fiction on a word processor. I cannot do it. I do write all of my journalism on a screen, but I my method seems to be very stymied fictionally when I try to write on a computer because I see I need not to see what I'm writing as I write it. So if I'm looking at a screen and it appears before me in type, I see the things that are wrong and I want to go back and fix them. But what I need to be able to do in order to write is go forward without looking back until I have a complete draft. I will just tear through an early draft. Um, look at me, which, you know, at times was, you know, as many as like seven, 800 pages long. I think I wrote the first draft in four months. Then I have the miserable job of typing in that, that mess that I've written very blindly. Then I have the even more miserable job of reading what I've typed. And, you know, after I go through several stages of mourning over the fact that it, it's terrible and, and, you know, seemingly impossible to, to fix, I then figure out how to fix it and spend several years doing that. So in terms of the keep, once I had figured out that I had these two voices, because I, that wasn't entirely clear to me when I began, as I said, I really, I pretty much let my gut tell me what to, sort of where to be when in terms of um, alternating between them. I didn't want it to be a tennis game of this world, that world, this world, that world. That seemed very dumb. But I, I also didn't really have a particular pattern in mind. So I just basically did it instinctively. And I made a few changes. I think I switched a couple of chapters later. But I, it pretty much, it pretty much fell in, in the order that, that you see it now. And I also had no real idea of how the two stories would intersect, even as I knew that the success of this book depended 100% on that intersection being satisfying, exciting, and, you know, clear to the reader. Um, and that made me a little nervous, but not terribly nervous because I've, I've been there before. It's this way every time, and I really have learned to trust in the process. This novel is very much, it's the, the literary equivalent of a Mebius strip. 
it, it loops back on itself. And that's actually one of the other things I think that you do that made me think of a lot of science fiction. You use a, you're informed by a lot of um, very modern technological ideas. There are, are do loops in here, which now seems we all know about computer loops and how you loop sound and you run write programs that loop. That wasn't something that was really commonly known before. And there's all sorts of uh, other kind of cybernetic feels to the way you put this novel together. Were you aware of that as you did that? Do you do you think, and I guess that this comes from your image-ready background. I don't think of it exactly that way. I do like to have a kind of physical model in my mind of what a book looks like. So for example, with Look at Me, I always pictured it as a figure eight because in that book, there are also two worlds and they loop together one person connects them, and he is both a presence and an absence. So I imagine him as the point in the middle of the eight where the two loops cross each other, and that each, you know, that in each direction, a loop originates from him and then comes back around and swings through him. I loved that idea, and it really helped me as I worked on the book to have that in my mind. So that's not really, in a way, there's nothing technological about that. I mean, it's just a very basic um, image. With The Keep, I, I never found something so crystalline to capture the shape of it for myself. But one thing I did think of was that it, I liked the idea that I knew that there was some way in which these worlds that are happening alongside each other at a certain point, collapse into each other and become one thing in some sense, one thing that is both very thin and very thick. So the way I thought of it was a little bit like a cylinder suddenly collapsing into a circle, three dimensions becoming two. Is that technological? I don't know. <laughs> I was never much good at science. <laughs> but um, I do think this way. I find it helpful to understand the basic, I guess in a way, a kind of skeletal structure for something that I'm working on. This novel I found to be rather disturbing and consistently it ha there's a, a grating feeling of fear in this novel. And it's the fear that you're always hovering over a void. And there's lots of images of the void, the pool of the imagination, the depths, the blank rooms. There's lots of stuff where people are invisible or ineffable. So tell me a little bit about the void that underlies this novel. Well, that's so interesting. I love that you were afraid. I didn't know if I could make people feel afraid. I had never done that before in my work, um, or at least not in this kind of overt way. And I, and I also wondered, because the book is funny. and, and Yes, it's very funny. I wondered, you know, that it, the humor of it was, was clear to me, but I couldn't tell. I kept asking myself, can something be funny and scary? Can that really happen? I couldn't think of any. You would probably know better any books that really do both. And I thought, now, can you do them at the same time? Like, is that possible? Can I go that far? So that was, I'm glad to hear that you that you found it scary. I think that, that the void of this book is something that I certainly feel in my life. And, and it's something that Danny, the, the protagonist of the castle part of the story, in a way captures, I mean, he has his own vocabulary to describe his worldview. And the two poles that he seems to move between are what he calls alto, which is a, a state of basically the highest state he feels he can achieve, which is basically a state of total connectedness, a state in which he can see clearly and be seen clearly, a kind of transparency between himself and the world in which he feels essentially that he has everything. That's basically what, what that describes. And then the negation of that he describes as the worm. And that is a state in which basically everything becomes nothing. And he experiences that as this 
parasitic, a, a corrosive presence just eating away at, at the everything that he would like to have from the inside so that suddenly it's all gone. Um, you know, in a way, I, I think what interested me about that, first of all, I actually can relate to that personally, even as I say, I never write about myself. You know, that feeling of not being able to figure out whether a sort of binary approach to life in which it seems sometimes like you're on top of the world or you have absolutely nothing. That that seems very familiar to me. And I also think that there is a kind of connection between that and some of this technology, certainly internet and, I mean, telecommunications technology, because on the one, it, it always embodies this paradox. On the one hand, you are completely connected. You can reach anyone. You can find anyone. You can learn anything. We're, you know, we're there is there are no limits really between you. All of those membranes seem to have disappeared between oneself and the outside world. And on the other hand, there is a corollary sense of isolation because all of this connectedness, in a way, presupposes one's own solitude <laughs> in front of a machine or an array of machines. So. You know, Danny is, first of all, a technology addict, um, but he's also, he's something else that is connected but a little more ineffable, which is he's kind of an access addict. He's someone who's really staked his his life on the idea that that proximity to power is a real thing. It's a commodity that is useful and can give him a lot. And so he's been what he calls a number two to powerful people over many, many years. He's kind of a front man in clubs. He's a he's a facilitator. He's a he's a um, a go-to guy for the rich and powerful. And this has been tremendously alluring to him. And in moments, he has felt a a tremendous heady sense of of it all having paid off because he's around famous people and powerful people a lot. But then the converse of that is that at other times what he feels is that he has absolutely nothing in his possession. He's nobody. He's done nothing. From his father's point of view, he has no career and is a total failure. So he seems to embody the same kind of paradox, which seems to me extremely modern in some way. You talked about his father's perception, Danny's father's perception of him. There's one uh, portion of the novel where he talks about having an invisible resume of invisible skills. And you, you seem to like invisibility. What is it with you and invisibility? I'm obsessed with invisibility. <laughs> it's true. My first novel is called The Invisible Circus. Um, that was actually a real event um, that took place in the late 60s in San Francisco. But um, I, I latched onto the name because... Well, in that case, what interested me about it, and maybe this will answer the question generally, you know, I grew up in San Francisco during the 70s, and I was I was obsessed with an invisible presence of the 1960s, which I had missed. It was hugely important to me and galling to me and, and tantalizing to feel like I had, I mean, I had been alive during the 60s, but I was a little kid. I, I It happened out through the car window as I was being driven to school. And that was gigantically important for me in my thinking about the power of invisibility generally and the way in which it often seems to be greater than the power of what's actually in front of us. And that kind of thinking can lead you in all different directions. I mean, as I mentioned before, I was, I'm was i very interested in in the power of media imagery, which is in a sense invisibility. I mean, those those are images of things that are not there. They are somewhere, but they are not 
where the pictures are, or we wouldn't need the pictures. So that that was something I explored in The Invisible Circus. And I was also interested in the way in which absent people can be so tremendously powerful. And The Invisible Circus is about a girl whose older sister has committed suicide at the end of the 60s. And this girl has grown up in her sister's, in the shadow of her sister and that time. And she, so intense is her is her longing for her sister and her belief that her sister was somehow more real than she is, that her own life is basically a blank. I mean, she just has not developed as a person. She's so in the thrall of all that. And the book consists of her efforts to retrace her sister's steps on this trip she was on when she died. And of course, some of what she learns, what, what, some of what she discovers, I should say, is not her sister, but herself. There's a way in which her herself is really on hold. I'm, I'm very interested in that phenomenon in all kinds of ways. And I think really at the core of it is a kind of really, I guess, a religious longing, if you will. I think we really all crave transcendence and some kind of lifting above the everyday. You know, every or there is no culture in the world that doesn't have some kind of religious expression. And I think it's all about that that desire to be to be lifted up, to to rise above. And I think that that the media, that mass media and the, these images, which are so powerful and act so sometimes on our imaginations and our unconscious, uh, unconsciousnesses without our even knowing it, appeal to, call to that, that will to rise up. And they do it through these images of what are not there. So those are some of the thoughts I have about invisibility. One thing that you talk about in The Keep that I thought was really fascinating, you make a parallel between our modern technology and telecommunications technology and old perceptions of supernatural experiences. And that's that speaks to this idea of seeking a religious experience of the world, even in our current technological society. That was, I have to say, that that wasn't in my mind in the way that it appears in the book when I started. What I loved was the idea of juxtaposing the gothic environment, if you will, which I would think of as one that's essentially cut off from the real world, um, whatever that is, but, you know, from everyday life, and and infused with this sense of, of the possibility of the supernatural. I love the idea of juxtaposing that with hyper-connected telecommunications just because they, the feeling of the two seemed so different. And I got the idea for the book when I was visiting a castle myself in Bouillon, Belgium, um, with my husband and my little baby. My husband had a job in France, and we went there during a free day, and I thought, oh, this is so incredible. I think what I loved about it was the feeling that it was so apart from the kind of communication that was really permeating my life at that point, it seemed. So what I originally thought was, I'm going to, I'm going to let these two worlds collide and see what happens, and, and especially um, delight in watching the Gothic trump the, the, the connected telecommunications. And indeed, that does happen. I mean, you know, the, the, Danny brings a satellite dish to the castle. It, 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 it's history within a day, and he is cut off. But what I wasn't thinking about when I had this idea was the kind of odd parallel between the two states. Because, you know, a state of, of connection, of technological connection, is all about being in the, in the presence of disembodied uh, figments of people that we are, are communicating with either through typing or the phone or whatever. Um, but there's this sense of disembodiment in all of that. And it's exactly the same in the Gothic environment in which there's this possibility of the supernatural, that, that actually they, they echo one another. They're analogous rather than sheer opposition 
um, sheer opposites. And that was really fascinating to me. That was a discovery. There's a really great and rather terrorizing scene when Danny is talking to Martha on the phone and he begins to suspect that he's not talking to Martha, that he's reached somebody else who's mocking this. And that speaks to that kind of void that underlies everything. Tell us well, a little bit about that. That's a really scary idea. I mean, in a way, this is this is really the worm in action as Danny conceives of it because he's madly in love with this woman. He has been cut off from her, but now, wonderfully, someone has handed him a cell phone and he's actually able to call and he reaches her. But by then, he is so he has been so wigged out by the gothic environment that he's been in, and also his head has been a bit turned by his cousin. Howard, who has all kinds of beliefs about the imagination um, and its power and a lot of distrust in technology and who has raised the question of, you know, how do you really know whom you're talking to? Things like that. So when Danny reaches Martha, he feels like it can't be she. It can't be that he's actually talking to her. It seems impossible. It's as if he's from another century and, and is, is expected to believe that this little machine he's holding can actually lead him to another human being. So because he feels distrustful, he keeps asking her to identify herself and prove that it is indeed Martha. And she, of course, uh, finding this to be a very unconventional, abnormal conversation for Danny, uh, not surprisingly, begins to question whether it is he. And so in the end... They hang up the phone, both enraged, feeling that, that they have been duped by a stranger posing as their beloved. And it's the last conversation they have. One of the fears that you evoke in this novel is the fear of madness, that we might just lose, lose it in, in a second and never get it back again. Well, I'm definitely a believer in, in a, a spectrum <laughs> between the mad and the sane. I, I, I do not, I don't think there's really a clear moment where one ends and the other begins. You know, I, I, know, I, I know well some people who are considered to be technically mad, and I find many similarities between their, their perceptions and my own. And I think that what's also interesting to me, what, what I was trying to explore too here is that you know, Danny, basically what happens in the Gothic environment is that he begins to feel besieged. He gets paranoid. He thinks that every, everyone is against him, particularly his cousin Howard, who has control over the environment that he's in. And good reason to be against Danny as Absolutely, well. because Danny committed a terrible um, offense against Howie when they were children. And what interested me, and in a way there's a parallel here with something like the turn of the screw, Part of it, what interested me was watching Danny's mental security collapse, although that happens fairly easily. But what interested me even more than that was the way in which his feeling of being besieged and threatened made him take certain actions, which had every potential to make him into the monster that he believed was against him. You know, and this is this is so much how the turn of the screw works. You know, there's a governess with two little kids. She's in this cutoff environment. She begins to see these apparitions, and she becomes convinced that the children are in cahoots with these ghosts. And she takes certain steps to try to free the children from this terrible demonic influence. But in the course of doing that, some not very good things happen to the children. So the question is, is she really helping them, or is she, in fact, the monster who is besieging them? It's a it's a great question. It's also, I think, a pretty important question to ask right now. I mean, this is not a political novel, but surely, you know, the question of what what uh, paranoid actions make of us uh, is is worth a worthwhile question to ask right now. 
Yes, it's the old Nietzschean question of hunting monsters and becoming them. Exactly. You For a novel that's filled with all the wonderful modernistic touches and, and the technology, you also have some beautiful scenes that could just strictly be transplanted out of a 19th century novel, and I'm thinking of the scene with the Baroness. <laughs> Well, yes, Danny, um, in a way, the, the, the critical event that cro- makes him cross over into, into Gothic land, if you will, is his, his encounter with this 98-year-old, we think, Baroness, who's the last remaining descendant of the family that has held this castle for 900 years. Funnily enough, she actually is modeled on a real person. When I first came to New York, I was trying to support myself and write, and I got a job as a private secretary for a woman named the Countess of Romanones. And she had she was American-born but had worked for the OSS during World War II and ended up meeting and marrying a Spanish count. She was very beautiful. She had been a model for Hattie Carnegie, and she was a really – she's still alive. She was a big personality, just a very a fascinating, difficult, complicated woman. And I worked for her from one to six every day for two years as she continued to write these books, which were actually big bestsellers at the time. This was in the late 80s. One thing that was interesting about this job was that it made me aware of a whole layer of deposed European royalty that still takes itself quite seriously. You know, she would get these huge engraved invitations from Russian princesses. I mean, this is this was during the Soviet Union. <laughs> I would look at these thinking, this can't be for real. These people can't mean it. But they absolutely did mean it. It made me interested in this, basically this abstract monarchy you know, back to invisibility, that still, this strict hierarchy that still exists, it existed in all of these people's minds. And I think somehow I, I knew that I would have to return to that. So when I found myself in a in middle Europe in a castle, it just seemed time to, uh, to bring in an old baroness <laughs> to get things rolling. <laughs> and as much as we've talked about this novel, we haven't even really peeled back the first layer uh, you, there's a second layer here because Danny's story, for as fascinating and compelling as it is, is being told by somebody who's also undergoing some fairly compelling experiences himself. And they're the source, I think, of a lot of the humor in the novel. You have a lot of poke, a lot of fun at literature and literary forms. Well, respectful fun, but but yes, I mean, you know, as ruthless. I ruthless. <laughs> um, well, I guess I'm a little like the Baroness in that way. I worried, actually, about setting, about having any part of this novel be set in a writing class of any description, even in a prison, because there's a way in which that just seems, you know, like you just can't do that. There's no way it can work. But it was, it was very fun to, although I have not taught in a prison, I did a fair amount of research, um, and I certainly have taught writing workshops. And it was, it was fun to, um, to poke a little fun at and in a way to have a freer time poking fun at the kind of at the big emotions that that are brought to an environment of literary production. You can't punch each other or stab each other in an MFA program <laughs> if you don't feel your work is being properly honored, but you definitely might want to. <laughs> and the thing about this environment is that they actually can go ahead and do it. So there was a kind of unbridled quality to the the emotions at stake. And I, it it was a lot of fun, I have to say, to explore that. Even as, in fact, it's it's a it's a scary, scary and a kind of sad story at the same time. But I I did have a good time with that. I'll confess. You also just make fun of literature itself. You use your metafictional techniques 
to to get past the impatience. I, I'm not going to bother to give you all that backstory. I'm just going to tell you what happened and drop these lumps of exposition in, in a way that in some in less skilled hands might seem really annoying, but for you, it's just it's a delight to read these portions. Well, that is it was definitely a risk. I'm glad to hear you say that. And I and I also have to admit that I cut back a little on that. I would say there was probably 25% more of it than there is now. And that may have at one point in the novel's life tipped things a little bit into the smirky, which is never fun for a reader. So I pulled back on that. But um, yeah, I mean, as I said before, I, I, I like the idea of it's not I mean, my thinking was not just, oh, let's make fun of this, but more let's let's do it a different way and see how how it turns out. I mean, I've certainly engaged in all of those conventions and will continue to of backstory and the slate of hand of of moving through dialogue and and just moving around in time and space. But because I was writing as Ray, a guy who wouldn't know how to do that and I had a feeling wouldn't want to do it, I was forced to find a different way to do it myself, and I found that really freeing. I mean, it goes even further. You know, I, I think I, I, I've always been what you would probably call a lyrical writer up until now, meaning that on some level, I really was trying to make the prose beautiful in some sense. Like, that was the standard I was holding myself to. And writing as Ray, I, I gave that up because that's just not the way he would think or write. And so it's not that there isn't beauty in here, but I, it... it Anything that comes along really happened by accident. It was never me thinking what image would would capture this this thought or this vision. It was more Ray kind of jamming words together in whatever way he could. And if a kind of beauty erupted from that, so much the better. But it it didn't happen in the usual ways that I was used to. So it, as much as I mean, certainly there's a there's a, a fun poking aspect to it. But I also felt that I wanted it to be more distinct and vivid and just fresh. There, I just wanted a kind of freshness that for me came from letting go of some of those conventions or, you know, going about them in a very awkward way that certainly underscores what is being done, but at the same time lets me do, some, do it in a different way. It allows you to really ratchet up both the tension and, and the pacing of the novel incredibly so that, that it reads really fast. Well, one thing is, you know, I, I struggled with the question of how Ray would write dialogue. You know, I've never been someone who has written without quotation marks. I've always done it in the very standard way because my feeling was you employ the convention so people so it disappears. You don't if you call attention to it, then you're actually, um, you, you know, it, it's inefficient. You're, you're drawing your your attention and other people's attention to something that could just go without saying. So just write dialogue the normal way. But I couldn't see Ray doing that. I couldn't see him using quotation marks or trying to find different ways of saying said, for example, which is a big challenge when you're writing dialogue. <laughs> I couldn't see him doing it. So I, I immediately, writing as Ray, I found myself using a, the dramatic format for dialogue, speaker, colon, utterance. In a way, you could say, well, that's totally pretentious. How dare you? And in, in a way, I, I, can, I think that's it's fair to say. But for me, it felt like the only way. And it is extremely efficient. I didn't have to write the word said at all, as, at all when I was writing the castle part of the story. So it may be that there was a, a, a shorthand feeling to some of this that came of letting go of some of these more complicated literary conventions. And just one more thing about the idea of poking fun. I think one reason I, I feel that it, okay about the fun poking is that really, in the end, this is 
this is like a pay-in to the power of literature. There is such a, I mean, in a way, one of the things I worried about most was, is this just too optimistic? Is it too is it too much a um, an homage to the power of the imagination to create worlds? Um, I think you know in the end this is probably my most optimistic book, um, which is a little strange given the the scary abyss aspects of it. But um, I do end up really I think with a an affirmative view of the power of literature in the imagination, which I'm not sure I even have. <laughs> it's the point of view of view of this book, but not necessarily mine. It does really speak to the power of the reading experience. And one of the things that's unique about reading, and this is very important in this book, is that reading demands an act of the of the reader. It's the it's I believe the only art form where you actually have to work to get it. Other art forms you just sit there and kind of let them wash over you. Reading you actually have to work and I think that's what makes it unique and more potentially much more powerful to the reader than any other art form. I've always felt that. You know, there is just in the act of doing it, there is an engagement and an investment on the part of the um, of the viewer or the audience member or the whatever the partaker that is that is different. And I also think it's it's a reason that sometimes books can have such a lasting power. I mean, you you spend a, a portion of your life with a book. It may only be a few days, it may be a few months. But there's a there's a real-time aspect to reading that I think makes it part a deep part of the fabric of one's experience in a way that that it is hard for it can happen with music too when you listen to something again and again and again and then you hear that song and of course you it evokes that period of your life and I think reading can have that same quality and it it can have a feeling of of having happened to you which I think is interesting and I find that very much as a writer that for example with Rockford Illinois I, I found myself longing to go back there again recently, which is really a surprise. And I, I've, I've asked myself, well, why? Well, why would I do that? I mean, I don't have any relatives there, and I've already written the book that I wanted to write about it. And I think it really is a feeling that something happened to me there, but what that something is is look at me and not my own life. It's as if I want to go back and visit the characters. It's as if I feel it holds something for me because the experience of writing that book was so powerful and that feels connected to Rockford. That's fascinating. <laughs> it's kind of weird. <laughs> you use some elements of genre fiction in this book, shamelessly and, and entertainingly. Uh, most... most uh, obviously the the gothic fiction what made you decide to reach into that toolbox and, and you talked about uh, look at me as a futuristic futuristic satire what makes you think that you can reach into the genre fiction toolbox and come up with literature well i think that it, as with all all things that i do fictionally it, it is more instinctive than anything i mean it wasn't that i sat back and thought ha ha here are some tools look what i can do with them i felt a kind of almost childish excitement at the idea of going into the gothic world. I had not really thought about that genre in particular, but looking back, I mean, I used to watch Dark Shadows after school, much to my mother's misery, and I had to do it when she wasn't home. But I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. It's so cheesy. I mean, Daphne Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca was a book that absolutely took over my life one summer when I was 11. I, I was just... I died for that book. I would never want to read it now. I, I doubt it's very good, but I, 
something about those archetypes, the, the, the doubling, the sense of an alternate self, always the, the, the old structure with so much history on it and under it. And, and I think also the idea of texts inside texts, this sort of this layered quality. I wasn't thinking of those things in particular when I felt this longing toward the Gothic, but when I got deeper into the longing, and started reading more or you know, rereading, I felt an absolute enthrallment at the idea of using some of those things. And I think that in the end, what it, it turns out that what was appealing to me about some of that stuff was that there it, 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 it was uniquely well suited to get into the material that I wanted to get into idea wise. Some of this, you know, the, the telecommunications and the supernatural, as I said before, I wasn't thinking of that going in, but somehow, the, you know, the central question of Gothic literature is usually, at least at times, and sometimes, you know, absolutely overall, is it real or is it not real? You know, if you think of the turn of the screw, are the governess's visions actually happening or is it a kind of projection of her internal state onto the landscape? And in this way, you know, Gothic fiction, certainly in the 19th century, really anticipates Freud and the whole idea of the unconscious. And I... I loved the idea of asking that question, and I think it was a perfect vehicle for me to look at some of the questions about reality that, that telecommunications raise. You know, what is virtual experience? Is it real? If we say it is, then are we, are we altering our notion of reality to accommodate that? Um, and when we fetishize reality in the form of, say, reality TV, are we really creating reality, or is that something else, too? It turned out that the Gothic, with its central question about about real versus imagined, was a was a really good way of getting into that. Partly because of these somewhat hackneyed but totally delicious and cheesy conventions. One thing that strikes me when you spoke is the idea of fiction's power to externalize our interior conflicts, and that's one of the things that science fiction and horror fiction are really good at is to. We, we can't talk about some of the things that are within us, but maybe we can describe a monster that describes them better than trying to describe our own feelings. And, you know, this gets back to, you know, this is a little bit like dreaming. You know, I think that we, you know, we write as a way of trying to, to understand what we think. We externalize it and then we see it or we read it. And I think, again, you know, I, I think because... Um, in some way, what all of this collapses into, back to my idea of the cylinder that turns into the circle, it collapses into its own made-upness. I mean, in the end, we are not sure what's real and what isn't. I certainly don't answer that question. And what I hoped for was that the question would become irrelevant, it, that it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't that, that having it be unreal wouldn't mean we had nothing, and having it be real wouldn't mean that we have everything, but that we would see or remember that this is a book that someone named Jennifer Egan wrote and that the reason the reason I write these books and, and that other people do and the reason that we all love to read them is that it's fun <laughs> and that it gives us a chance to um, to learn things about ourselves and to ask these questions in a way that is that can be exciting. Jennifer, you've done quite a bit of or some uh, journalism. You do this on a on an annual basis now, and you've done some really interesting things. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about some of your excursions into the world of journalism, what you did, and why you chose to write about the things you did. Well, 
I, again, it is somewhat ex- instinctive. Um, I, I basically just take on stories that interest me, and I'm sometimes not quite sure why. The, it, the journalism has always been connected to my fiction in a way, um, right from the very beginning. The first piece I did for the New York Times Magazine was about young models living in New York. The reason I agreed to do it was that I was trying, you know, look at me involves a model whose face has been destroyed and reconstructed, and she tries to reenter her old life, old life with a different face. I was having zero luck getting any access to the modeling world of New York, which I needed to learn about in some detail. But no one gave a damn about some unknown novelist wanting to learn about their work. I mean, they just it meant nothing to them. So I correctly guessed that if I called in the guise of a New York Times reporter, I might get a slightly different reaction. Um, and that turned out to be true. And what I figured at the time was, well, the story is probably not going to work out because I have no idea what I'm doing. But at least I'll get my research done. But it turned out that, you know, with enough work, many, many months, um, the story actually worked out, too. And so that was basically the, the beginning of this moonlighting career of mine. Um, and it and the two have continued to intersect in odd ways. I mean, sometimes, for example, there was a piece I did right before I finished Look at Me, which was about gay, gay teens, um, closeted gay teens, and their out online lives. And I... I was kind of fascinated by the idea of that, although I didn't really know why. And it turned out that uh, it was really, I think, in some ways, the inception of some of the thinking that has found its way into the keep, because it was really my education in what it meant to have a virtual life and how complete and um, and gripping and um, totally engrossing such a life could be, because these kids described their online lives as their real lives because they felt like they were living a lie in their real, their so-called real lives at home. They were pretending to be heterosexual, and they felt like no one knew them and they were totally isolated, whereas online they felt that they were understood and had, were part of a community and, in fact, had very intense you know, love relationships as well. That was really, I mean, it was one of those things that I knew, I knew that people did this. I'd certainly heard of virtual experience, but I had never so viscerally understood what it meant. And as a journalist, I had to learn a new way to do my research because I couldn't see these kids. I mean, I did actually meet one, but for the most part, my my research consisted of IMing, um, which I had never done before, um, and lots of email with these kids. So it, it was, it raised certain questions about the reality about the reality question in their lives and also in terms of what it meant to be to really do journalism. So that was an example of something that I, I picked not knowing why and found to be really useful and 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 deeply, deeply motivating from a fictional standpoint. And that that seems to happen again and again. Um, I've, I've learned about all kinds of Things Some of them don't find their way into my fiction, but I think that they're important to me personally. Like I did a piece about semina- Catholic seminarians, you know, very conservative seminarians. And um, my father was, was supposed to be a priest. Um, you know, he's, I, my, I'm from my father's side of the family, Irish Catholic, south side of Chicago. My grandfather was a cop. And my dad was the smart boy. And, of course, he was going to become a priest, um, but then, you know, ended up not becoming a priest. And uh, so I think sometimes it it leads me into looking at things about my externalizing, if you will, questions that I have about myself and my own past. But what it mostly does is it just gets me out of the house, (laughs) which is really helpful as a fiction writer. I mean, I think there is a way in which there is always the danger of solipsism. You know, you're you're inside your own head. You're inside your own place. You're in your sweatpants. And, you know, what what actually makes it possible for an artist to 
contend with the world. I think, at least for me, there has to be some engagement with it. And and reading the newspaper is all well and good, but there's just nothing, there's no substitute for actually getting out there and talking to human beings or interacting with them in some fashion. Um, and I think that's been the really critical thing that the journalism has done for me. It has it has maintained a level of engagement and, and a, a, you know, a rather steep learning curve over time in terms of my sense of what's going on out there and my relationship to it. You spoke of yourself as teaching yourself anew every time, starting with a blank slate, as it were, every time. And I'm wondering, do you foresee a time when you're going to come back and have all these tools in your box, the metafictional tools from the keep, the narrative style from the invisible circus and um, look at me and say, okay, now I know these tools. I'm going to use them to build something well, I think I'm always doing that. I mean, I think in a way the the blank slate is a little bit of an illusion. You know, even if the I mean, may, even if the only tool I'm taking with me is a kind of faith in the process that makes it all easier, that's huge. And I think that it's you know I, I, there's something I don't mean to be um, disingenuous. I think there is a way in which, of course, I am bringing something with me from one project to the next. But I mean, I feel like. There almost isn't time for repetition. I mean, if the goal is really to create work that is going to last and be interesting in a, in a big way, I've got to keep moving. <laughs> I mean, life is really short. I, you know, my goals are, are big. I really, I want, to, I want to stay out ahead of everything I've done. That's just my way. Um, and so I, I can't, I, I, I'm sure that all of the things I've learned will always be useful, but I have a feeling I will always at least have the sense that I don't know what I'm doing because that means I'm trying new things and that means I'm continuing to move. And I I really feel that's a standard that I will probably continue to hold myself to. What are you continuing to move towards now? Well, I'm interested now in writing about, um, I think I, I, having, having departed from verisimilitude for the keep. I, 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 well, I'm interested in re-engaging a bit with American culture in a more immediate way. I'm interested in the period in New York right after World War II um, and the kind of optimism that I, I sense was felt at that time. And I'm pretty interested in looking at the all of the changes and trajectories that have led us from that moment to the one that we're in now. I'm really interested in a multi-generational book, which I've never done before. That seems technically very interesting to me. And I'm also I'm, I'm interested in uh, women who worked in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, of whom there were thousands during the war, and, and ships. I'm, I'm thinking a lot about ships. Where all of this will lead, I don't really know, but I think the, the mere fact of setting it at least beginning it in the 40s and and having it cover more than one generation will pretty much guarantee that um, I will be on very different territory than any of my previous stuff. We'll look forward to returning to you when you have finished covering that territory. We've been speaking with Jennifer Egan. Her new novel is The Keep. Thank you for joining me, Jennifer. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.